Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get over to Jeffrey Cleveland right now. He's a principal and chief economist at Payton and Rigel, and he's got um, some real intelligence for us on the U.S. jobs market and how it relates to the Fed. First, I want to talk about the triple crown of open water swimming, Jeffrey. You have completed a swim across the English Channel, the Catalina Channel, and you've swum the entire distance around the island of Manhattan. What compels you to join this elite club? I think only 40 people have done it. Well, I think it's one of those things if you're a swimmer in college and you're not quite as fast as, you know, say Caleb Dressel or, or Michael Phelps, you, you look for stuff to do after college. And I took up ocean swimming did a bunch of swims in the San Francisco Bay, actually. And then, you know, in, in the ocean swimming community, it's really, you know, it's like climbing Everest, uh, you know, swimming across the English Channel. So that's, that's kind of something that you want to check off your bucket list. So I, once I did that, uh, I realized that there was a more exclusive club, which was the Triple Crown. People had done all three of those. So I felt like I had to swim from Catalina back to L.A. and then, and then around the, the great island of Manhattan. Only 40 people in the world have done it. We're talking in, in the history of the world have done this. So it's a pretty exclusive club and very impressive. Uh, I just wanted to hit on that so our <laughs> listeners know. I mean, obviously, you've done a lot of other stuff, but that's huge. Um, all right, let's get to the jobs report and the Fed, because in your view, we're still a long way from maximum unemployment. We know this Fed is focused on that, and they have an outcomes outcome-based um, framework in place. So does that mean um, you don't think we're going to see, what, tapering so soon um, and, and certainly not rate hikes either? Yeah, here's the context I would give you. This morning we got 850,000 jobs added for June. That beat the consensus. Yet, uh, as you noted, 10-year Treasury yields are a little bit lower. In fact, yields across the curve are lower today. So uh, it's a bit of a head-scratcher, but I think the context that matters is that even if we add 850,000 jobs per month going forward, we're still a long way to anything I, that I would describe as maximum employment. probably takes another year or so to get back to pre-COVID levels uh, on total employment. Uh, so, so we'll get there. We're, we're moving in the right direction. It's very good news, but it's still going to, I think, fall short in a year's time from, from maximum employment. And, I, you know, little hints of that today, right? You had the, the unemployment rate tick up a little bit to 5.9%, so that's um, it's a bit disappointing. And, and then there's no progress on labor force participation. So it's, it's possible you get a year from now. We're still not at maximum employment. So I think, you know, calls for a 2022 rate hike are, are really, really pre premature. So that's the biggest consideration. Tapering, you know, the Fed is trying very hard to separate tapering from hiking. I think they've done a pretty good job of doing that. There's two different decisions. We do think they will start to taper uh, beginning in Q1 of 2022. But it's, it's for me, the big question for, for the markets, whether it's the bond market or whether it's equities, is you know when does that first rate hike arrive? A couple weeks ago, there's some concern it might arrive in 2022. I think the data today tells you, no, that's uh, you know 2023 at the earliest. Well, that last FOMC meeting, uh, Jeffrey, there was some focus uh, on the dot plots. Is that where the focus should be? I don't think so. I think the dots are a distraction. You know, 
I've been a longtime critic of, uh, of these dots. You know, I've been saying drop the dot plot. <laughs> it's it's you know those figures are interesting, but they're submitted before the meeting. They're not yeah. the topic of conversation at the meeting, and they're not a policy uh, outcome of the meeting. And totally I agree. think. It, it provides a lot of fodder, you know, a permanent uh, employment clause for, for Fed watchers such as myself, of course. So And a great I screen on the Bloomberg it. terminal, which is good. Exactly. You know, go. great, great screen. But I don't think it tells you a whole lot. I think if you're an investor, you shouldn't look too much at what policymakers have in terms of their dots for, for a rate hike, say. You should say, when are we going to reach maximum employment? And then you should ask, okay, at that time we re- when we reach maximum employment, are we gonna, do we have sustainable 2% uh, inflation? Those are the two things that will determine whether the rate hike occurs. And so our conclusion is we won't have maximum employment before you know, maybe the end of 2022 or after. So that kind of rules out uh, a rate hike before that. Great to get your views, Jeffrey. Thanks so much for joining us. Jeffrey Cleveland is chief economist and a principal at Payton and Regal talking to us about the jobs report and the Fed. <laughs> I want to bring in now Leonid Berzhidsky. He writes for Bloomberg Opinion and his latest story, Dark Markets Can Be a Geopolitical Force, talks about um, cyber hacking and the blame game that we've all seen uh, kind of carefully played between Presidents Biden and Putin at their last summit. Most recently, um, uh, there was a German uh, banking system hack that has been blamed, at least by um, German, the German press, on Russian hackers, state Russian hackers, they even say, in the Bild Zeitung, which is the most widely read paper here. Leonid, I've actually been wondering about this for a long time. Is it really fair for us to say um, definitively that these hack attacks are from state-backed Russian criminals just because they are in Russia? I mean... If we blamed every U.S. criminal on the U.S. government, um, you, you'd, you'd have a lot of problems in Washington, D.C. as well. Yeah, well, there's this major difference between uh, Russia and the U.S. Russia is increasingly a police state, and not many things uh, happen there without the government's explicit or implicit consent, especially if they're um, uh, you know, big projects. Uh, for example, the column that you mentioned um, talks about uh, Ghidra or Hydra, a uh, dark marketplace for mostly drugs, but also fake papers and stuff like that. It's a Silk Road uh, of sorts. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, the, again, there's a difference. Uh, Silk Road uh, didn't last as long. Hydra <laughs> has been around since 2015. Uh, and it's got uh, an uh, annual turnover of more than a billion dollars in cryptocurrency. So it's a, uh, it's a pretty uh, noticeable project. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is the place where if you want to buy drugs in Moscow, that is where you go. Uh, so it's it's kind of impossible to ignore. It's sort of the elephant in the room. Uh, and uh, the... Uh, you know, things like that cannot uh, really operate in Russia without some sort of protection from above. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that is the difference with the U.S., where you can, you know, build a, a, a large illicit project and not uh, have corrupt officials, 
protecting or supporting it in some way. So, Leoden, I guess that's one of the questions I think a lot of people have is when they think about the Russian, uh, I guess, influence or role of the government in these hacking, is it support per se or is it just simply turning a blind eye? Well, uh, turning a blind eye is uh, a form of support, right? It is, but I, I didn't know if there's anything more overt. Uh, well, uh, for one thing, whoever is protecting these uh, these businesses and the, the entire infrastructure, the entire ecosystem that has uh, grown up around them for money laundering, for uh, providing work to uh, engineers and to other, you know, lots of other people, uh, it's a huge ecosystem. And... Uh, if the uh, you know if somebody in the government is turning a blind eye, that person or or those persons are highly personally interested and probably you know getting part of the part of the profits in exchange. So that is one uh, sort of um, one thing that uh, you can't really ignore. The other one is the geopolitical angle. Uh, if the hackers and if these illicit operations hit the West and not Russian targets, then basically this at least coincides with the direction of uh, official policy. And there's less of a reason for the government, uh, the Kremlin, you know, the authorities to go after them. They're actually seen as doing something useful for the motherland. Well, and also... I don't think they could expect due process necessarily if they were to hit Russia, just like, um, you know, Chinese criminals probably shy away from hitting out against the party. Do they have the same, you know, is there is there the same tacit support of crime like this in China? Oh, I um, I wouldn't really know about China. Uh, Russia is, you know, where I'm from, uh, and and that's uh, that's how it kind of works there. If uh, the targets that are hit by criminals uh, are also targets that are hostile to the government, uh, the government uh, shouldn't really be expected to come down hard on these criminals. So, Leonid, give us a sense of what the policy of the United States has been to this to this point, and maybe how it needs to change. Uh, well, the U.S. government um, is kind of it has to walk a fine line. It can't say, you know, it can't tell Putin directly, uh, you know, someone in your entourage or you personally uh, are on the take and and like protecting. Uh, these illegal businesses for payment. Uh, you know, what the, the only thing that they can say, and they've been actually doing it quite correctly under Biden, they've been saying, uh, you know, these people operate from your territory, they seem to enjoy some kind of protection, and, you know, that's not a good thing. Um, I, I doubt that the uh, U.S. government can do more than that in the sort of in the public space. Uh, the other thing it can do is, um, uh, you know, is fight back and um, step up the, the defenses of, um, 
important infrastructure. I wanted to ask you about something. I was going to say completely different, Leonid, but I don't know how far off George Orwell's 1984 is from what we're seeing here. And I ask you because you recently authored a Russian translation of um, the British author's masterpiece. Uh, What are you seeing? I mean, he, Orwell, famously um, modeled his novel after Stalinist Russia. What are the differences between what we see there and Putinist Russia? Well, uh, Orwell didn't exactly model uh, Oceania um, on Stalin's Russia. It was sort of your... Um, you know, a combination of, of different totalitarian regimes. There were elements uh, of Nazi Germany um, and actually elements of, uh, um, you know, wartime England uh, mm. in, uh, in in those descriptions. Um, but, uh, and, and because it, it, it is that way and there is no, like, 100% specific model mm. there, uh, you can obviously, you know, find lots of similarities uh, with um, other authoritarian governments, mm. uh, including the current Russian one. Um, obviously, the you know, the, sort of the, um, uh, the the hostility toward the outside world is very similar to what Orwell described, uh, and the sort of siege mentality. Um, and the uh, lack of, uh, basically a lack of written rules is one other um, uh, sort of right. feature. And certainly Big Brother, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, the Big Brother aspect. Well, yeah, yeah the, well, Big Brother is uh, uh, sort of a, <laughs> a guy with many faces, and uh, yeah, Putin is one face. Yep. Leonid Brzezinski, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Leonid is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion based in Berlin. Right now, I want to talk more about work. Tom Gimbel joins us. He's the founder and CEO of the LaSalle Network. It's one of the leading staffing and recruiting firms in the country. And uh, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Let me first ask you about your reaction to the numbers. Um, what do you think? 850,000? Are we going to keep seeing numbers like this? Yeah, I think it's great. I think what we, you know, we saw today was numbers of recent college graduates from uh, May entering the workforce in June and getting hired. We still saw pandemic recovery in the service and hospitality industry, meaning with warmer weather and restaurants opening, that even though there's a huge uh, shortage of labor, there's still a lot of people finding jobs. And so you got those two things coming together for the numbers. And so, you know, my feeling is even if it would have been below estimates at 650 or 500,000, it's still a win. Estimates are just that, estimates. But anytime we're, we're adding over a half million new jobs, it's a good thing. All right. Tom, when you talk to your clients and they're talking about their hiring processes, we've heard lots of stories about how a lot of companies are unable uh, to find workers. What do you think are the primary reasons uh, that that's the case? So our firm works with venture capital-backed firms. We work with private equity-owned companies and publicly traded companies. And what we see in the marketplace is companies are in high demand of people, and we do all white-collar uh, positions, even though some of our clients may also hire for blue-collar roles. 
And on the lower level positions, the the increased unemployment compensation from the federal government is for sure a hindrance to companies finding people. On the flip side, we've got people that have relocated uh, due to remote work, due to the pandemic, and have left where jobs are and have gone to other areas in warmer states, southern areas, and it's left a lot of vacancies in the northern part of the country. And I think once we see uh, the economy kind of settle down post-pandemic, I don't mean settle down like in a bad way, but settle down that people aren't worried about the pandemic anymore, we're going to start seeing those positions get filled. Where are you seeing um, less growth than you anticipated? One of the interesting things, uh, Tom, which is why I ask, that we've noticed is that a lot of industries, for example, airlines, have been able to boost production um, closer to pre-pandemic levels without boosting hiring. And I guess that's because they have a lot of automation in place that um, they brought forward. Are you seeing that in other industries as well? Well, I don't know. I, I, not, you know. I know what the data says to an extent, but I'm not sure if I agree with that on the airline when the numbers aren't where they were pre-pandemic. I feel you. And yeah, what, I feel you because you know, they what could. What they're doing is they're they, 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 they could just at a higher occupancy level. Yep. Yep. Right. So they they weren't running efficiently before. I think or they haven't was, fired as many people, and so they don't need to rehire. I know data. I agree with Mark Twain. You know, um, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but something about lies. In any case. We do see, though, technology, you know, being brought forward to automate a lot of positions that, you know, used to require humans. Yes and no. We're, we're doing it, you know, like you go to a baseball game now, and instead of having as many vendors, they're having, you can order it on your phone and food will be delivered to you, right? It's a technology innovation. The difference is you're waiting three or four innings to get the food, and there still aren't as many people doing the job, and you're not getting your food when you want it, and you're unhappy. So what companies are doing is they're using technology to compensate, but in some ways it's not giving you the same level of service as you get from having full, full employment. So it's a, it's a Band-Aid. It's not a cure, and we're years away from being at the point where people are going to accept technological advances in lieu of having people to actually do the job. So, Tom, to kind of follow up on that, there's still, I think, the number is seven or eight million folks uh, that are still out of work relative to prior to the pandemic. What's the outlook for those folks? Do you think we're going to get all them back into the workforce and perhaps, you know, over what time period? Well, there's real questions there. Number one, do they want to be in the workforce? Number two, did they overvalue their worth when they got out of the workforce? And number three, are they ready to take the jobs that are available versus what they want? You know, I, I'm the CEO of a $100 million company. If I lost my job tomorrow and I only wanted to be the CEO of a $100 million company, there might not be a job available for me. I might take a job at a startup or at a $5 million company. And that might be an extreme, but if you look at somebody who was an accountant and they lost their job and they can't find a job as an accountant, maybe they weren't a very good one and they've got to go look at it. The infrastructure bill is going to get passed, hopefully, in the third quarter. And when that happens, there's going to be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs working on infrastructure, and people are going to have to pivot and adjust, but the jobs are out there for anybody who wants one. Where are you seeing the biggest gains in terms of uh, pay? I, I've noticed the, lately that all of the banks are boosting their pay for junior yeah. <laughs> analysts. Of course, not everybody can slide yeah. into those positions that easily, but are you seeing other industries where you know just everyone's competing by, by raising wages quickly? 
Yeah, the reason you're seeing it in banks is because the so much uh, dry powder on the sidelines that deals are being done. So banks need to hire as many people as they can to make sure that they're getting the market while it's hot. And, and, you know, historically, they don't have a hard time of downsizing when they need to either. Where we're seeing growth continue needs to be less in industry and more in skill sets. So we're seeing a ton of back office accounting and finance professionals at all types of companies, manufacturing, technology, distribution, service firms. We're seeing a ton of salespeople, which is a great sign, because that means companies are planning for longer-term growth, and they want more salespeople to be able to do that for the foreseeable future. And then, as always, we're seeing technology. But the biggest and most interesting role is human resources never took a hit during the recession, which Mm. is a huge surprise based Mm. on the most two recent recessions. And HR continues to be an area that companies are hiring for. And one that terrifies me. (laughs) Terrified of (laughs) HR. If I see that HR on my my office phone, I'm I'm not picking up. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure having you. Uh, Great to get your insight, as always. Tom Gimbel, founder and CEO of LaSalle Network. Let's check in with Chad Oviat. He's a director of investment management at Huntington Private Bank. They have $27 billion uh, under management. Do Chad, when do, you see a do job... Do any disclosure? Pardon? Do, we need, do I need to do any disclosure here? I don't know. Do you? It's my bank. It's your bank. There you go. It's the bank of <laughs> the Matt great, Miller. There should be a tagline. state of Ohio. Yeah. There, there should be a tagline. The bank of Matt Miller, Bloomberg Television. I'll, and I'm going to ask them to change it. Chad, let's ask them to change it. <laughs> Chad, what, what, what do you make of that jobs number uh, we, we saw this morning? What does it mean for your economic outlook? Yeah, so certainly seeing that many people get back to work is good news, right? 850,000, well ahead of expectations, really good, but there's still some mixed messaging in the data. You saw the unemployment numbers tick up a bit. So as we continue to look through this data, is it enough to move the Fed? I think the general takeaway here is probably not, but from our general thesis, we still think the Fed starts to taper on the MBS side, that the bond purchases part of their asset purchases later this year. So um, how much tapering do you think? I mean, I don't know how out of consensus that is at this point, Chad. It looks like um, the economy is certainly humming along, and Lord knows uh, mortgage-backed securities doesn't need any more support. So yep. how, much, how much tapering do you expect? Well, so we think the lion's share of the tapering would come from that MBS side for the rest of 2021. Look for the Treasury side to start picking up early in 22. We even saw the IMF this this morning coming out and saying that they're expecting some degree of tapering from U.S. Fed early in that first half of 22. So to your point, I think we're in with consensus. We'll see if any of the additional data points change our perspective on that. And of course, July 28th, as well as the symposium in Jackson Hole will definitely be on our radar to see if the Fed has any additional commentary. You know, we did get a bit of a hawkish stance, or at least interpretation of a hawkish stance at this last meeting. We'll see if their commentary changes that as well. Chad, I'm looking at the, uh, again, the 10-year 1.44%. Where do you go? Where is Huntington Private Bank going for yield these days? Yeah, that's a challenge, particularly for our Huntington clients that are looking for income. And as we think about where to generate income, the bond market is really challenging. And in fact, we've been overweight equities in the majority of our portfolios and looking for sources of yield in 
the equity markets. We've also been using things like preferreds and REITs to gain some additional yield out of our portfolios. So uh, what kind of yield are we talking about? As someone, as someone who accesses your portfolios. <laughs> right. So, so the yield is going to be dependent on a number of variables, time frame, targeted allocations, those types of things. So it is client dependent. We work very closely with our clients. We have portfolio managers and advisors throughout our footprint looking for those specific needs of our clients. Uh, but generally speaking, our positioning, and this is playing into some of that income theme, has been a post-recessionary stance for our clients who came into the year with this idea of a post-recessionary stance. Lately, we've been adding to some of our inflation hedges, though. So think precious metals, again, those real estate ideas. We've been doing that on a global scale. We've also been adding some tips. So again, post-recessionary positioning, inflation hedges starting to present themselves in our portfolio. The other thing that we're doing, and we think it's a, a good idea for investors to think about this, and you could see this value to growth, growth to value rotation going on as well as part of this theme. It's prudent to think about trimming and adding to parts of your portfolio that are performing well, maybe underperforming mm-hmm. in this. Keep that balance. Keep that acknowledgement of what your overall target is and, and think about trimming and adding throughout the rest of this year. All right. So, you know, <clears throat> that that brings up two questions for me. And I've got literally hundreds of dollars with you there. So, if, <laughs> we appreciate uh, that. Thank you. First of all, how many other people are in my situation who have moved to cash here? Um, how many people are holding dry powder? Because we hear so much about the cash on the sidelines. There is a lot of cash on the sidelines. And this is one of those areas that we focus on with our clients to really talk about what your long-term goals are. And it becomes less about today's market prices, tomorrow's market prices, but what are you truly saving and investing for? And if it's five, ten years out, whatever the time frame might be for your situation, we're recommending dollar cost averaging here. We recognize that we have some things on the horizon that may influence markets. We have an earnings season with high expectations coming. We still have fiscal policy decisions yet to be made. We have monetary policy decisions yet to be made. And we still have an ongoing pandemic. So we're we're fans of dollar cost averaging into markets and staying broadly diversified here. I also want to ask for a little bit more specificity in terms of inflation hedges, because this is something Paul and I talk about with people a lot. are you still looking at the traditional inflation hedges, um, gold and tips, or do you see people doing uh, new and exciting things? Anything more complex? Or, I mean, I know Bitcoin is too volatile to think about in that way, but are there other uh, moves that people are making these days? So generally for our public markets, we're looking at those traditional hedges, right? Um, so tips, gold, real estate. We think those still have, as they historically have, have some benefit, some hedge to inflation. In the private markets, there's some things going on there where people are maybe getting a little more exotic. But for us, you know, at our core, we're, we're a fiduciary manager. We're a bank here in the Midwest. And so our approach has been to use some of the traditional asset classes, use the idea of asset allocation, again, trimming and adding the newer potential stores of value or hedging against inflation, things like cryptocurrency, still not in our portfolios, although we are continuing to evaluate those. 
All right, Chad, looking over on the equity side of the ledger, there's been a little bit of a push-pull between the the folks that have favored, you know, those growth names that have worked so well for so many investors, uh, the, the Amazons, the Apples of the world, and those that have really, you know, embraced this, I guess, uh, kind of rotation trade into some of the more cyclical sectors. How do you guys view the, the equity side? Yep. So for our equity portfolios, we really do focus a lot on staying balanced between those two disciplines. We we don't typically make aggressive calls to overweight growth or value. Naturally, coming in with a post-recessionary trade, we're favoring a little bit of that value space. We're still looking at quality companies, those that are having good quality earnings growth. So the earnings season this time around will be very important to us, as well as thinking about the comparables for the rest of this year. So growth versus value for us is a little bit of the conversation, but it's more about the individual companies, their ability to perform, their ability to meet expectations. And with that said, what, what we have done is we've broadened out our equity exposures. So it's not just large cap domestic equity that we're using, we've been using mid and small caps as well. And more recently, we saw some value in international developed. So that's an area on the equity side that we actually have been adding to. We think that theme of particularly Europe being a couple of months behind the U.S. in their response and their reopening, we think that provides an opportunity for our clients. What do you got going on for the 4th of July, Chad? Is Ohio... Is Ohio uh, all back and opened up? Are you guys ready to rock and roll there? You know, we we are pretty much open. I think folks are feeling really exuberant about being back to some level of normalcy here in Ohio. And I have to tell you, we're a baseball family, so my high school-aged boys are playing baseball all, all weekend, and I'm looking forward to being at a baseball field. Reds or the Tribe? <laughs> we're a Tribe family. Oh, God, I miss Ohio. <laughs> I tell you, Paul, it has got to be one of the greatest states in the nation. I'm going to say the I'll, greatest. I'm going to take your word for it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like at least eight presidents are from Ohio. <laughs> I've had this argument before with um, Brian Sullivan at CNBC, who's from Virginia. Uh, I think Ohio has the most presidents of any state because there's one, I can't remember who moved from Virginia to Ohio, but I feel like if you chose Ohio as your place to die that's almost as good as your place uh, of birth chad great talking to you thanks so much for joining us chad oviat there he is the director of investment management over at huntington private bank thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm matt miller i'm on twitter at matt miller 1973 and I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.